0: Welcome to Crossfade, the dueling album review show about expanding your musical horizons. I'm your host, Matt Helgeson, joined by Jason Daphnis, our producer and co-host. Hey, Jason. Hello, Matt. And we are super excited. We have a very, um, I don't know, iconic uh, uh, composer in the world of video games with us. Uh, we've been super excited to set this one up. We're very pleased. Uh, you you know his work going all the way back to like *Mist Ribbon*, Myth 2, his, you know, I think really iconic, uh, some of the more iconic scores in video games for the Halo series, um, Destiny, and more recently, uh, Gollum for uh, Highwire high games. Um, but we're super excited to
1: welcome Marty O'Donnell to the show. Welcome, Marty. Uh, thank you guys for having me on. Matt and Jason, this is a pleasure for me. And by the way, I just want to say right off the bat that I, there's, you know, kudos, respect for for you young guys interviewing such an old guy. I, that's, that's pretty cool.
0: (laughs) No, i Hey, we're, we're, uh, we're gonna, (laughs) we're excited to get into the deep end of progressive rock here in a minute, um, which is definitely the deep end. Um, but, uh, yeah, Marty, I just, I guess I wanted to, um, just talk a little bit before we get started about, you know, some of your, your background with music and your career. Um, just tell me a little bit about, you know, even going back to childhood, you know, uh, Were you sort of a, you know, one of those children that was sort of precocious and drawn to music at a young age? Or how did you kind of get started on the path that you're on?
1: Uh, Yeah, I wasn't a prodigy or anything, but I was relatively precocious. I probably was, I, I couldn't stay away from the piano from the time I was like three, four years old. It was every time I walked by it, I would reach up and, you know, tinkle on the pianos. Tinkle being not the operative word, but I would play the piano with my hands is what I meant. Uh, my Thank mom you. was Thank a, you for clarifying <laughs> my mom was a uh, piano teacher my dad uh, at one point in his career was a disc jockey and and knew a bunch of uh, big band guys uh Stan Kenton and a bunch of people like that so uh they, they were both big music people my mom was classically trained but she also played uh, jazz um so I think I come by it pretty honestly my dad ended up being he was a movie director and so it was easy for me to do creative stuff. They would never, they were never going to complain about anything I did creatively because that's what they did. So that was great. Um, And I took formal music lessons my whole life, piano mostly. Um, uh, You know, Bach, Beethoven, Brahms. I I loved the classics. Um, Probably when I first started playing in bands, I believe it or not, I think the first Band I was in was in junior high and we played Tijuana brass music.
2: Oh, wow. Um,
1: Yeah. Uh, We were a big hit, by the way, in junior high, just so you know. That was was a big (laughs) hit with the girls playing Tijuana brass, playing piano, (laughs) playing playing piano for the Tijuana (laughs) brass cover band. Uh, um, Then, of course, I started with friends, right? You know, everybody had a garage band and and Doors and Santana, Almond Brothers, some Beatles. Um, and I think probably somewhere around seven, 1970, I was just starting high school and started to get, be aware of some other stuff going on in music. Uh, Emerson, and Palmer, Blood, Sweat and Tears, Jethro Tull, uh, yes. Uh, and when, when those bands hit the scene, I was hooked. I, I found, I found the thing that I think, you know, I could be happy with, um, they were musicians they were talented they were interesting uh and even my mom and dad would be sort of like well that's not crap right so yeah <laughs> it was one of those i sort of had to keep it in balance i had to like still play brahms but show that like there was some cool stuff out there in the uh, pop music scene
0: yeah and i mean obviously to varying degrees those bands were all kind of doing more complex stuff um in the case of yes you know there's obviously they drew some really, you know, explicit parallels and, and you know, re- musical references to classical music. Did that sort of appeal to you because you you already obviously had that standing appreciation for classical music?
1: Yeah, I think actually the first one that did it explicitly was Keith Emerson from Emerson, Like a Palmer. He was doing, uh, he was he he put Bartok in the middle of one of the first pieces. I think it was called The Barbarian, um, and. I recognized the tune because I had, I think I had heard it as a piano piece from, from Bela Bartok. And I thought, wow, who's this? Who's doing that? Who actually has a, a background similar to mine, but is doing this amazing rock and roll. So um, of course, you know, trust me, I know the purists will not call Emerson like Palmer rock and roll, but um, I, I think that's small minded, frankly. Um, so I, you know, I, then they did Pictures at an Exhibition, which is also classical. Um, so Keith Emerson was hugely classically uh, influenced. And then, yes, I, I'm not sure that I would call them directly classically influenced, but they they had a symphonic feel to just about everything they did, which was pretty interesting. So yeah, that was pretty exciting. I mean, w- you know, we had hints of that with the Moody Blues, and and of course, even the Beatles. Um, yeah. Uh, especially with some of the new instruments that came in, like uh, the Mellotron, was like the coolest thing ever in 1970. It had been around for a couple of years, but like when you heard the Mellotron, I mean, I was convinced at age 13 that if I could, if I only had a Mellotron, I would be a rock star.
0: Period. It's- yeah, that's a that's a <laughs> that's a an amazing, I mean, I actually was lucky one time. I was in a studio, a friend of mine that uh, he shared a studio space, and and they had a working Mellotron. So one time, I was actually oh. able to kind of mess around he he caught, he sort of actually bemoaned the thing as this kind of somewhat of an albatross around his neck uh in terms of like keeping it running and everything but oh yeah the sound is amazing
1: i saw it uh years and years later um i saw it at somebody else's studio i think i might have seen it in nashville at a studio in nashville but anyway uh and i i remember seeing one i think when I was a teenager I saw one in a record store. They didn't let you touch it, but oh, the, the thing I heard about it was that it was just horrible, horrible. It was I mean it was all mechanical, you know, it was tape, little tape loops and they, they always went, you know, slipped off the heads and they were out of alignment and they ran at speeds that weren't right. And that's why it had such a funky sound. It's because it didn't necessarily sound real as much as really interesting. Like I yeah, said, those are yeah. not flutes, those are Mellotron flutes, which is cool. So,
0: Yeah, it's almost kind of a ghostly kind of quality or yeah. eerie kind of quality to mm-hmm. it. Um, so then, you know, obviously, uh, you went and you studied uh, at, at the uh, um, Wheaton College Conservatory of Music. So you, you were served sort of like, you know, formal training at that point. Right. Um, and, and how did that kind of open up your… Maybe just ability to realize things that you had ambitions to to do, or
1: well, I mean, we'll probably get around to talking about this because the reason I chose the the album I chose today is because this, that album was like hugely influential uh, in the direction I went. Um, what happened was in high school, um, it was almost like I had a split life. I, I was doing all this classical music on the piano and actually preparing to become a piano major at the Wheaton Conservatory of Music. And, uh, but still at the same time, I was going to see yes. And I was going to see, you know, uh, I like Palmer and, and Jethro tall. I was seeing these concerts and there was a small group of, you know, music nerds at the high school. And this one, I remember this guy came up to me and he says, well, if you like all that kind of music, of course, Led Zeppelin was in there too, by the way. Um, uh, if you, he said, if you like this music, you you got to hear this new band called Gentle Giant, and I j- I just sort of thought, well, I mean, how new can it be? I'm already at the cutting edge of everything. So, uh and then that's what happened is I got this album. Uh, I think I was a senior in high school, and I got that album, and it just became such a, a- eye opening, you know, audio experience, musical experience for me. Um that one of the first things I did when I got to the conservatory is I found some other guys in the, in the conservatory that also liked progressive rock and fusion. And so we started a band together almost immediately. And it took me a while, but after two years, um, as a piano major, uh, I switched to composition. And so, so I was going to be a comp- composition major, even though I'd never written music before, because at one point, uh, the drummer in the band, um, said to me, why, why do you keep figuring out all these Yes and Zeppelin and Tull and Return to Forever songs? Why don't, you, uh, why don't you write something? And I was probably between 18 and 19 years old, and I had never, with all this musical background, no one had ever sort of given me permission to compose. No one had ever even suggested it. And, and I thought to myself, wow, how come I never thought about doing that before? And uh, I, I remember the band, was my, the band that I was with was rehearsing in my parents' basement. And I went upstairs to the grand piano and I just wrote something immediately and came back down and said, hey, guys, play this. And suddenly I was a composer um, and I liked it way more than being a piano major.
2: Do you do you think you would have gotten there without the pro- poking and prodding of your prog friends?
1: Um, I don't know. I, you know, I was on this track. I was I was sort of on this 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 is the track. This is what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to be piano major. Here are all the courses laid out in front of me. I, I, I at one point I thought, well, I'll never finish college anyway because I'm. We're at some point we're going to hit it big and I'll be a rock star once again. Melatron, I would have been a rock star. <laughs> um, uh, so, but it was just this weird sort of, uh, you know, with a bit was flipped. This guy said, why don't you compose? And I'm, I, it just never occurred to me. And as soon as I started composing, um, I never looked back. It's just like, that's what I want to do. I don't want to perform piano or I don't even want to be in a performing band ne- necessarily as much as I want to write music. Uh, I'll be in a band that performs my music, but I, I would love to just continue to write music for anything possible. So uh, I, he, I, it, it might have been inevitable at some point, but I'm glad it happened it, uh, when I was 19. So at least I only wasted 19 years. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, after that, I know uh, I read that this. this actually really surprised me that you did uh, commercial jingles for – Mr. Clean, Flintstones vitamins, uh, which which is kind of interesting, just because you know I, I sort of know you from your more serious work, but um, just talk a little bit about that. And was there is there any aspect of of, of that portion of your career that sort of <clears throat> informed what you do you know what you do now or what you've done through your career?
1: Well, first of all, I'm shocked that you don't consider jingles serious music. So I'm not even sure if I want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I retract the statement. Uh, well, you know, it's funny. I, I, was, I went to USC uh, in grad school as a composition major. So I, I got a master's in music composition, uh, immediately went back to Chicago. I, was, I thought I was going to teach at the American Conservatory. Of music in Chicago. So I had switched from I'm going to be a rock star to all of a sudden, what, I'm going to be a college professor? I, I don't know what I was thinking. But anyway, um, I it, it, to make money, I got, I, I got married. I had a brand new baby. I had no job. So I was uh, working on a film set as a grip, uh, which is one of the sort of schlubs that, you know, hauls lights and cables around. Uh, and I got that job because, like I said, my dad was in the film industry, so um, I was able to use that connection. And, and I remember a producer came up to me one day, uh, soon after I started, and she just said, uh, "Hey, Marty, you got that? You have a master's in music composition. Why don't you do, you know, music for TV and radio and films and stuff?" And I'm like, "Well, I don't want to prostitute my art." So, uh, those words came out of my mouth. I, as I said them, I thought I knew what that meant. Um uh, literally the next day, the director of the film we were working on came up to me and said, Hey, Marty, I got 500 bucks. If you score this little film we're doing. And I'm like, absolutely. So <laughs> I switched from, I, I, I just didn't know what my price was. Apparently $500 did the trick. So, um, <laughs> and of course I had to split it with my friend, Mike, who, uh, We'll get into that later, but my my friend Mike had a, his a little recording studio in his basement. So I I agreed to do the job, even though I had no equipment and no place to record. But I thought, well, if I split it with Mike, uh, maybe we'll be able to do something. So that's how Mike and I got started. Um, so yeah, I that went from doing industrial films, you know, films about Ronald McDonald and Ray Kroc and Ray Kroc, who, by the way, is the founder of McDonald's. So it was a very serious documentary on the life of Ray Kroc. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we would score films like that. We scored films for Encyclopedia Britannica films, you know, educational films, animated educational films, all sorts of stuff. And then that very quickly moved into some uh, commercial jingles. Um, so we started doing – we just, just did work for whoever would pay us. So that turned into, very quickly, I would say within a couple of years of starting that, we were doing national commercials uh, for TV, which was amazing. Um, Flintstones Vitamins, I think it was 1985. Um, you know, we did a big pile of news music for the local ABC, ABC News channel. Um, uh, Mr. Clean, McDonald's stuff. I mean, Mr. Uh, Culligan you name it so we were doing all that stuff but to get back to eventually I mean after about let's see almost 20 years of that like 15 probably 15 years of that I think we were working late at night once on a uh, and this is a very specific thing that I have a strong memory about as a matter of fact you can find this commercial on on the internet it's a tidy cat commercial with a claymation cat. Actually, a bunch of claymation cats. <laughs> uh, so it's for kitty litter. So, But I was scoring this thing, and the client was going to come in the next day. It's uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, and Mike and I are arguing about whether the oboe should go up or go down, whatever it was. And it suddenly like, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh, I actually did prostitute my art. <laughs> So it was okay for about 15 years and then I realized, yeah, okay, I've raised family and kids and put food on the table and have a nice studio downtown, but um this is not doing it for me. So that that led to a bunch of stuff that ended up making me uh look at video game and scoring for video games. Um and, but one of the things I think I took with me, which I I've, I'm really glad I did, is the importance of a hook. So when you're doing jingles, you got to be able to, to get a musical hook into people's heads in, in like 10 seconds. Yeah. And um, so anybody who doesn't think, oh, the, the monk chant is a hook. So I, I sort of consider Halo's monks singing as a, as a jingle. So. <laughs> oh yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, it, it is, but you're right. I mean, it, de- it definitely is just one of those like short bits that kind of instantly recalls something, you know, in the same way that a jingle recalls
1: a product, you know yeah, what I mean? Yep, exactly. Um, I mean, I think if people talk about, you, you used the word iconic before and I appreciate that, but I, I think you you don't get to be iconic unless you uh, have a hook. Like the hook has to be there. And that's, that's what I think uh, makes things iconic. So that's my opinion.
0: Yeah. And uh, I want to obviously get into your Elm pick, but um, just sort of as a final thing, we'll fast forward a bit into your your career in games but um I'm curious what you've I guess how you've thought about your career because you know in a way your your work is is sort of operating in the tradition of you know traditional film score and out of that school with some maybe elements that you've taken from like things that you like like progressive rock or other forms of music but also there's the element of you know doing things like you know dynamically generated music you know having the music adjust to what's happening in the gameplay, you know, dynamically and things like that. Obviously, you know, and in, in computer computer composition and, and computer audio. Um I guess how how does that all fit together in your head and what was it about that mix that really appealed to you?
1: That's a that's a great question. Um because I wasn't as we, as we you know did films and commercials, um the technology of music production changed drastically. This is all through the eighties, uh, early nineties. Uh, the computer came in. I was a big computer nerd. I was always bringing computer stuff and, and new technology into the studio and and experimenting with it. And I was also a gamer. I love playing games. Um, so it all sort of came together in the, in the early nineties when I, when I saw mist, um, and I saw that, like, oh, you can actually do really interesting music production and audio production for these video games now. So I immediately thought that's that's a new place that I would like to be. So I was when I I got the sequel to Mist, Riven, and then at the same time I got Myth, the Fallen Lords for Bungie, and I was completely attracted to the technology involved um, of making adaptive music, uh, making audio and dialogue, um, you know, sound effects and everything else actually uh, adapted to what the game player is doing and, and making that seem real and flexible and functional and all of that stuff. So I really enjoyed the, the sort of technological audio engine side of how all that stuff worked together. So, um, yeah, it wasn't just, I, I wasn't just like, oh, I just want to write music. I, I enjoyed uh, writing music, chopping it up, making it be adapt, you know, adapted to the player's uh, um, experience and working on hiring actors and directing them and getting good voiceover and, and doing sound design and doing the final mix, doing the whole thing. It, it was, uh, it just was perfect for me at the time. I, I loved doing that. So I came up with the term audio director. Um, and I said, yes, if I'm going to do games, I'm going to convince these, these gamer developers that, uh, they need me as an audio director and I'll direct everything that has to do with audio and they bought it. So that was good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's worked out well. It's worked out well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to, let's, uh, let's get into your pick. Um, this was a band I'm a little bit familiar with. Um, I think I have one of their albums on vinyl, but I don't remember which one it has that kind of hobbity sort of character that they have the big um, giant. But yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, a gentle giant, uh, progressive rock band, uh, from England. Um, and you specified, I knew we were in the deep end of Prague and then you specified the Steven Wilson mix of it, which <laughs> that's even like another, cause I, I've been familiar with his like remixing of some other stuff like tears for fears. And, you know, he's uh for people that don't know, I think he believe he's in a band called porcupine tree. And he's kind of become a guy that's remixed a lot of albums in this genre. Um, and so, I guess first off, what did did you just feel that his mixes were a, a, a real improvement upon the originals? Uh,
1: well, I think they're an improvement upon the originals. It's just everything is a little bit cleaner. Uh, he, I, I feel like he he didn't really change anything fundamentally. So it, it almost feels like, yeah, this is the way I remember it. Um, but it's hard to find decent. Uh, I mean, like you said, if you have vinyl, it's probably worn out in some way. Well, mine's are my vinyl is all worn out and the digital versions sometimes seem uh, just not to have the clarity. Uh, And so he's gone back to the original stuff and really, you know, made everything nice and clean. And the the other thing I like about this particular album, uh, the Steve Wilson mix is he also has a, uh, like a, what is it? Maybe a 10 minute, 12 minute uh, live uh, mix of the octopus medley, uh, which is, I, I think that's important um, f- for people to understand that they, they actually played this live. They could actually play a version of this album live and, and really blow people's socks off. So, and yeah. I saw them live several times and I, I was always really impressed with their live performance. So, All
0: right. Well, I think we should hear a little bit at this point. Let's uh, I mean, I think we could start off. The first song is really kicks it off on a good foot. It's the advent of Panurge. I mm-hmm. believe I'm pronouncing that right. And um, you know, this, this will give you an idea. I mean, it's it's very <laughs> it's very different. It's very complex, and 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 I think a very which we'll get into. I want to get into some stuff later, but I think they're even within Prague or have sort of a unique approach to music. So let's hear a little bit.
3: They're Coming over Charing Bridge. Look, do you see the man? Who- Do you wish? And where Where do do you you wish? Where do you go? Where are you? Where are you from? from? Will you you tell me your name? Rest a while. Call me your friend. Please stay with me. I'd like to help. Then he said. How can I speak when I'm dry? How can I speak when I'm dry? So bring me aid and I'll answer answer your dear friend in need I'd like your help, please take me home, I'll stay with you
0: Yeah, one thing I noticed, I mean, that beginning, I think one of the interesting things about them is they, they, they there's a lot of uh, very kind of complex vocal arrangements, I think. I mean, a lot of the prog bands did in a way, but theirs is, is sort of feels different. Maybe you could articulate that musically better than I could, but um, like almost like singing in round style yeah. or um, like... Maybe tying back to like English folk music. I don't know if that was an influence on them, but they have an interesting approach to like harmony and and group vocal.
1: So, considering the fact that I had already been listening to Yes and Jethro Tull, um, I was, you know, I was ready for something that was different. But I got to tell you, when this song started, the first time I heard it, um, I was instantly, my mind was blown because I could tell that these guys approached music differently than. Just about anybody else I had heard. Um, And it was because, and I'll tell you what I think the secret is. The reason they're different than all the other prog bands is because they're all about counterpoint rather than chord progressions. Okay. And I know this is going to sound, I hope this, well, you know what? I'm I'm a music nerd and I'm probably a snob at the same time. Uh, It's not that I don't love good rock and roll or chordal stuff, but I just had never heard anybody approach music where it's all about melodies. Like, everybody has a melody. The bass player, the guitar player, each singer, uh, the keyboards. Each one has a separate, different melody, and all the melodies work together in this amazingly cool way. At At least that's my opinion. And that was my first, what I think was my first hearing in rock and roll or pop music where it was about counterpoint, which I knew counterpoint from Bach and Brahms, uh, although more Bach than anything else. And I just had never heard it. Nobody was doing real counterpoint, in my opinion, in rock and roll. Yeah. Could
0: you, could you kind of break down the definition of counterpoint? I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with the term, but I don't know if I know specifically what that means musically.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, it's, it's actually an ancient uh, approach to writing music. It goes back to the 16th century. Now, I didn't know this at the time, but I, I knew that I played a lot of Bach. And Bach is all about independent melodies. So melodies, each voice has its own melody. And that's called polyphony rather than monophony or homophony. And homophony is, so look at, it, look at it this way. If you if you start to write a song and you're like, okay, I'm going to write a song called AFG. A, 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 F, 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 G, 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 right? You, you're playing chords on your guitar. So you have a bunch of chords on your guitar that you play over and over, and then you come up with a melody on top of that and you sing a melody on top of it. Well, that's not to, that's not entirely different than what even necessarily classical musicians did. A lot, a lot of classical musicians uh you know from from beethoven and from mozart and handel and beethoven there was a lot of chord progressions that were uh understood it's like this is a good chord progression and then we're going to put melodies on top of the chord progression okay so what you have is especially you know especially when you get into any kind of pop music um you you very often have the players who play the chords, and there's a bass line, and then there's chords, and then there's a melody on top. And there's that's obviously a super successful way of writing and, and making music. Uh, but there's a more ancient way of making music, which actually does, it sounds old because it, it was done in the olden days, where the most most important thing is that every voice, whether it was like five recorders or, you know, three sack butts or, so I'm talking about 16th century instruments here, uh, you know, or even the lute or whatever. It's like, they played melodies. And right. and if you were going to play along with it, you would, the aesthetic was to play a melody that complemented this other melody, but had an independence of its own. So each melody was legitimately good on its own, but they worked mm. together and counterpoint gotcha. is like this is it's a slang i guess it's a ancient slang for what they were talking about but each note has a counterpoint to another note and gotcha. there were some some rules that came out of that which you know the composers of those days would would understand that this was a good piece because all the melodies complemented each other and it was good polyphony. I mean, they didn't say those things, but they had, okay. they had some standard practices that like, if you do it this way, it's good. If you do it this other way, for example, if you were to have a melody and then you did another melody that was parallel with it, like it followed the exact shape and movement of the first melody, they would say, oh, that's no good. That sounds like organum, which is old fashioned. That sounds like uh, old church music. We don't want okay. to sound old. We want to be hip and cool and new <laughs> and yeah. do this new cool thing called polyphony. Right? But they didn't call it Got polyphony. It. They just – Right. See, and this is the the driving force behind every era of music is you want to sound new and different. But you're right. still based on something that came before. But you want to sound new and different. Yeah. So I think what's interesting – I'm sorry. You know, that's such a nerdy – you know in no the no no let's
0: no, that's, that's let's get i i i love that kind of stuff um, okay good. And just, i think just, just
2: to give people context i read marty that you actually met uh gentle giant in the 70s and talked about pretty much this stuff yes right?
1: exactly i know I, I i gotta say i'm so happy you guys interviewed me about this because you know i would never thought anybody would ever be interested so in my old age you guys it's fun to see that you're interested but like yeah i was as a you know a 20 year old uh kid who had started my own prog rock band we were I followed them. I was probably stalking them. So I found them at the hotel after the uh, in Chicago after the uh, concert, and literally got into the elevator with them as they were going up. And I, you know, I was very cool. Yeah. And then I looked over and I said, uh, "Hey, I just saw your concert. It was great." And they're like, "Oh, did you like it?" <laughs> you know, it's like. <laughs> they were really nice. And I said, yeah, I said, uh, would you guys mind us? Like me and, and my bandmates are, well, you will know, we'll buy you drinks down at the bar. We were 20. We weren't allowed to do that, but uh, <laughs> we figured out how to do it. And um, they said, yeah, we'll be right down. So they went up and, you know, changed their shirts or whatever came down and, and we sat for like a, an hour and a half at the, at the bar in Chicago and talked to them. And what was interesting is I had, like I just said, I had just switched to composition and I think like I was, had been into Gentle Giant for a while since 73. So this is 75. Um, I, I don't know if when I first heard Gentle Giant, if I knew why I liked them so much, I just knew that they were different and they were surprising. Um, and then I took this 16th century counterpoint class. Um, and I think I might have just finished it when I talked to the main writer, the keyboard player, Carrie Minier. Um, oh, nice. And I said, I said, wow, you know, I just took 16th century counterpoint. And I like, I see, I think I see what you're doing. He goes, oh my gosh, that's my favorite class too. He <laughs> goes, yeah, I, that's, that's why I do what I'm doing. You know, it's like he was, he, I so I sort of, this is the way I remember it. I mean, maybe it wasn't quite that vociferous, but like he basically said that, yeah, 16th century counterpoint was the thing that he was using. Of course, he was using it at a modern context, but he was using the, the practices of 16th century polyphony composers to make you know prog rock which was insane and yeah, it was that's so cool crazy, yeah. but that's why periodically i think it also has this sort of harkens back to you know troubadours and and english uh, you know lute players and yeah and, mm-hmm. and, well, we should, uh, and all that stuff
0: let's listen to rock into a troubadour which uh, i think you know has, has some violin it has, has the sort of folk classical influences I think are, are pretty out front on this song and I think this is kind of a, a standout on the album for me
4: gather round the Bailey square come good people both wretched and fair see the troubadour play on the drum hear my songs on the lute that I strum I will make you love rebel
1: I mean, you can hear right there the violin just is now doing the melody that the singer was doing before, but the singer is now yeah. doing a new melody. And, of course, violin, that was the other thing. Holy crap, violin, tambourine, you know, and there's no progression that I can recognize. I mean, it's it's just totally different.
0: Yeah, um, I, I'm curious, and I don't know how you... Well, they're very different tonally, extremely different tonally and and influences wise in a lot of ways. But there are aspects of them uh, in the way they kind of construct these sort of off kilter feeling like kind of grooves and and interlocking parts. It reminds me a little bit of some of the some Frank Zappa stuff.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, Um, definitely.
0: Even though he comes at it from a very like kind of that very sarcastic kind of, you know, Zappa kind of thing is, is sort of like semi-parody all the time uh, whereas these guys are much more you know sort of sincere Um, totally
1: yeah yeah well i mean i don't know if you know this but zappa there's a you can find it on the internet he's quoted as saying when somebody asks zappa are there any bands that you really like and he goes "Uh, not really although gentle giant is doing some really cool stuff
0: (laughs) oh nice wow yeah I mean that's like effusive for Zappa.
1: It's totally it's <laughs> you know
0: because like, like, he was kind of an a hole about yeah, most stuff. Yeah, uh, so that's pretty yeah that's pretty high praise.
1: Oh yeah, and then look, it, like the first time I heard this, I'm like, wait, xylophone? Who plays xylophone in a rock band? What the hell? And then they go into this like pomp and circumstance section.
0: Yeah, here is, is like this is, is like very like classical. Oh yeah. Um,
1: no and and let me just say um the the this is not the kind of Tuesday, uh, uh album you put on in the background and then just you know sort of chill out this is right this is what I would call active listening like and, and for an 18 19 year old kid who's like looking for something to stimulate his brain, uh this is perfect, right so um this this takes active energy to listen to. Now what? Here comes the trumpet.
0: Yeah, like, they use a wide variety of oh yeah, and instruments. they're all playing their
1: own. They all play these, and they play well. I mean, oh wow! Then, so violin, this isn't like
0: they didn't they didn't bring in like ancillary musicians. No 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 no, all, no. Wow! But
1: this is all them. They played everyone. As a matter of fact, on the tour that they came to the states, I think they brought with them you know thirty seven instruments or something ridiculous, and they and they played them all live.
4: Arrested, I
1: said, and three three and uh, this album three different guys did all the singing um there were three brothers uh, ray was the bass player he was the youngest he didn't really do much singing derek is the lead singer and then phil is the oldest brother and he's got a much more gentle voice and he's sang. uh on a couple of those tunes. And so did Carrie and both Carrie and Phil are, have, yeah, both, those two guys have very, uh, sort of ethereal voices. And even that, even when they sing, like you said, they don't just sing harmony. They sing melodies. Like they each sing a different melody together. Right. Yes.
0: It's, yeah. It's very different. Yeah. The only thing I, that it kind of brought to mind sometimes is in, in a very different way, but just some of them, like when the, late sixties, early seventies Beach Boy stuff when, when mm-hmm. Brian Wilson started mm-hmm. to get kind of pretty out there and sort of like embracing like Aaron Copeland and people like that, you know, when when uh they were sort of breaking out of the pop format and he just did these very odd kind of vocal arrangements. I wanted to hear uh, a cry for everyone, because this is kinda interesting. This to me is sort of like the closest they get on yeah. this album to sort of like
1: it's almost a, con- almost normal a conventional
0: <laughs> 70s like heavy rock because yeah, it's song. got a guitar
1: riff and a power vocal uh, but then it still goes into this crazy counterpoint so i'll go ahead and start it i'll tell you i'll i mean you'll see when it happens
0: Yeah, this is a uh, one that I'm a I'm a <clears throat> big fan of this band, and I I, I definitely hear uh, that like Rush, the band. Yeah, yeah. Could they have a way of doing this sort of heavy rock thing with sort of a an odd kind of meter, stilted kind of feeling? That mm-hmm. you know, maybe on some of the like Hemispheres or uh, Farewell to Kings, like the the proggiest Rush stuff. I wonder. Yeah. They were kind of listening. I mean, I I would imagine they might have been fans of Gentle Giant. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Well, Rush Um, came
1: just a little bit after Gentle Giant. I've always thought Rush probably... I'm sure they knew about Gentle Giant. Just about everybody in the prog world, I think, knew about each other. But here's here's one of those sort of... This is what we call a chase. Like, the, the melodies chase each other, and they're imitating each other. And of course... You know, you got guitar and organ, and and then a almost a straight ahead backbeat drum thing going on. Uh, yeah, yeah, which ma- I mean, makes this is a great like, riff. I love yeah, this. It's riff. still rock, right? But even if you even if you listen to the guitar riff, it's not it's not just chords. It's a melody, and it's not matching what the singer is doing. So it's it's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, and like There's your sense. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, they a um, um, uh, moog or something. Um one thing I did notice too is that um obviously they, they get they're they're very chops, you know, they have great chops for yeah, sure. Yeah. Um but I would say that compared to some prog bands, they they're not particularly interested in like extended soloing. You know, it's 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 Generally, kind of seems like sort of more composed, like ensemble playing, as opposed to like you know, like the, the real long guitar solo kind of stuff, which I, I think is kind of cool.
1: Yeah, and then they go into this part here, which comes out of nowhere. Um, and once again, just listen to all the different melodic things that are happening; they're all different. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I've I've watched a few interviews with them and. They approached music as composers. Like, they... Carrie and Ray did the majority of the composer composing, and apparently they would come in after working all these parts out and say, okay, hey, you need to do this, and you need to do that. And, you know, not everybody in the band, believe it or not, actually read music, but most of them did. Uh, Carrie wrote everything out. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't... It wasn't, here's a groove, and now just take a ride and just riff over the top. It was, this is composed.
0: Jason, there's another thing. This ties back to something that Marty mentioned in passing, but um, can we go to the song River at about 2.30?
1: Oh, by the way, before you do it, uh, I just, one of the other things that killed me uh, because I had been in some bands and I was, one of the things that just about every one of these songs, you, you have to question periodically, where did the singer get his note? (laughs) because <laughs> yeah. usually like, like is it you know, in the chord the, that he's playing yeah yeah. is it in the chord is it in a melody where like the singers just like they, they know the notes they have to hit and they hit them and sometimes you're just wondering wow that how, where do they get mm-hmm. the note it's nobody else is even playing that note it's not in a chord it's not in a melody they just they just it's just another instrument they're just their yeah. the voices are almost like other, another instrument all right go ahead I'm sorry
2: sure here is River at about 227
0: Here, I love this groove, Um, but you'd kind of mentioned in passing like Fusion a little bit. Yeah. I don't know if if you were like, there was obviously like this maybe recalls a little bit of like some Electric Miles stuff or, Mm -hmm. you know, there was obviously Mahavishnu Orchestra. You mentioned Return to Forever. Do you think were they sort of, I mean, was there a lot of crossover between Prague and Fusion and was that something you were in tune to and maybe something they were in tune to?
1: Well, um, I was into it. So, you know, 18, 19 years old, I'm like listening to everybody else's music and stuff I thought was cool, which was... I thought Prague was cool. I thought Fusion was cool. So they were both on my uh, radar. But I have seen a couple of interviews with the guys in in Gentle Giant, and they they were sort of like they were just into what they were doing. They didn't spend a lot of time listening to other Uh people. So um, I don't know if they... I think they kind of were not very influenced by other people. Now they were on the road. They they backed up Jethro Tull, and hmm. uh, you know, they, they 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 knew about other bands. As a matter of fact, when I met them in '75, they they asked asked us why we thought Yes was so popular and why they weren't pop. You know, like nobody knew who Gentle Giant was, but everybody knew who Yes was. Yeah. Which was interesting because, you know, I was like, well, why do you want to be popular? Who cares? We love you, you know?
0: Well, I mean, going back to your, you know, when we were talking earlier, I mean, I think the reason is you mentioned hooks and I think, yes, always as progressive as they got, they always were kind of a hook band as well, you know? Oh, yeah, totally. So they had choruses that were, you know that people could hear on the radio and remember, I think,
1: you know, where's yeah. this
0: stuff like the melodies are so naughty, and I don't know if they're using some degree of like modal scales and things oh, yeah, like totally. that. Oh
1: Oh, that's the um, other thing. Um, but of course this is funny. Like their guitar player was a straight up blues guy who would play anything they to- asked him to play. But periodically he would go into a blues wah wah guitar, which is like hilarious. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. That's one of the other things is they don't, use uh traditional um scales uh especially and we'll get into this when we talk about the kinks um and once again this is a music nerd thing but um mixolydian is the classic rock and roll scale and gentle Giant will use mixolydian they'll use dorian and lydian and phrygian they'll use all sorts of the church modes and then they'll do They'll do scales that I can't even figure out, which is very cool. So yeah, the one thing the- they're not doing is they're not being, they're not conforming to traditional um, tonal chord progressions that, that that we're used to that, that come out of uh, rock and roll mixolydian.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's definitely a different melodic sensibility. Let's, uh, I wanna, uh, wanna make sure we cover a lot of this stuff in these. Sure. Uh, uh, so this one I love. Number one, this is like definitely, I could tell was sort of designed to be probably what I'm assuming you saw them live. It was probably a, a live kind of set piece that, you know, really kind of showed off just their, their prowess on their instruments. I love this title because it's for a band like this, it just, it sounds more like a, you know, Guess who? Or like Grand Funk Railroad song title, "The Boys in the Band." <laughs> um, like you know what I mean? It's just such like a rock and roll, yeah, you know, yeah, on yeah. tour kind of song title for for a, a band like this, which I thought was funny. But this this I'm assuming was probably like something live that people looked forward to. Oh
1: yeah, totally. We can start and, it, Jason. And 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 the thing is, is that it's instrumental, so there's no singing. Now it's just them showing off.
0: Was this a, a pretty like frequent, frequently played live number?
1: Uh, I think they played it just about every time I saw them. Yeah. And of course, you know, try to count that out. like what's the what's the meter?
0: Yeah, I mean, in general, I, that's one of the things that took me, um, that I wouldn't say it was off-putting, but it took me a minute and a few listens full through the album to get my head around their rhythmic sensibility um, because it, it, it definitely has a, a kind of off-kilter. It's definitely not 4-4, I think, in a lot of places. I don't know meters very well, but it...
1: Well, no, that, it, you're, you're absolutely right, and that's on purpose. I mean, that was that's one of the... Um Hallmarks of Prague is that you're going to have changing meters you're not going to be 4-4 you're going to always keep people no one will ever say yeah that Prague tune was great I had a great beat and I could dance to it you just don't <laughs> you just don't dance to Prague that's just not what you're going to do mm-hmm. and it's on purpose and it is I, I got to say it is off-putting it, it's it's you, you don't relax. Like I said, you don't just relax and listen to music like this. It's, you have to be actively listening.
0: Yeah. And I, I'd also just shout out to, um, uh, I believe the drummer's John Weathers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, man, he's tremendously skilled and, and very subtle too. I mean, he's not, he can be showy like on this song, but a lot of times he's just kind of creating these very odd grooves that kind of work in a weird way, despite feeling kind of stilted. And I, he's just a, Really across the board, a very uh, very impressive drummer.
1: Yeah, and he was one of the guys who didn't read music, so he would just he would just sort of like just give me the counts, and then I think he would try to do you know, he, right here. I mean, he's putting a yeah. backbeat in, so he he puts a backbeat in any place he can.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and which, there are times actually, that you can't. <laughs> I mark that down as like something that they do kind of get into more jazzy, almost like R and B. Like, they have some, like, just piano things here and there yeah, that are, yeah. like, call back to a little bit more of the R&B blues tradition, which I think is kind of nice little elements within all the very, you know, kind of grandiose stuff.
1: Yeah. And, and then, like, right in here, like, this little section here is, like, well, this sounds like just sort of a nice little fusion-y nothing spot, right? I mean, it's... And then, of course, it changes again out of the blue. It's The saxophone comes in out of nowhere. But yeah, I mean, the first—I remember the first time I listened to this album. I was, my, my, I was in the room with my guitar player. We put this album on and we listened to the whole thing, both sides, without saying a word, and then immediately started it over <laughs> and listened to it again. We were just both like, we've never heard anything like this, and that's what we want to do. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, just, it never, yeah, it just never stays nev- the same. It never long.
1: stays the same. And, it, and it, like uh, the tempos change, the meter changes. You never get comfortable in any one groove.
0: Um, Well, I want to make sure we can cover. Uh, one song I wanted, before we maybe switch gears to the kinks, I did want to, this song I really stood out to me in an interesting way. It was not something I expected from this album. Uh, think of Me in Kindness, which actually, for the most part, a, a few a few parts aside is actually sort of a, a very kind of straight ahead, almost like kind of lost love ballad. Um, And, and kind of interestingly, like somewhat conventional actually, which I think kind of sticks out of this album in an, in an interesting way.
1: Um, Yeah. I I, I found it
0: a very affecting song actually.
1: Yeah. This is a, this is one of Carrie's song. Who's, who was the guy who was at the Royal Academy of music and, you know, 16th century counterpoint and the whole thing. But this is actually, I, I, and, you know, you've, you nailed it. This is what I, I wrote on my notes that this is almost a traditional song. I mean, it's a piano and vocal. It's got chord progressions. You know, it's a chord progressions on the piano and a simple vocal melody. I mean, it's intimate. They still had <laughs> about 148 into the song. They still change it up with counter, counterpoint and mellotron mm-hmm. flutes and vocals and stuff. But they, yeah. but you're absolutely right. It's it's the closest, I think, to a traditional um Song like pop, pop songwriting, mm-hmm. almost you know? a pop but song. Let's yeah. listen
0: to it. It's really, it's really uh, very well done.
3: Why am I using words no more to say without you? Close the door,
0: I mean, this is almost reminds me of like a you know, maybe like a, a Broadway tune or something.
1: Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, and it's in the night, your it's intimate, and it's it's a traditional approach. This is this is what we call homophony. It's it's basically bass chords and melodic singing, melody. Of and then even this section here sounds almost old-fashioned to me. You hear he's just playing chords in the left hand. Uh, you know on the piano. It's just chords And a single melody line. Yeah. I love when it lifts up here. It's beautiful.
3: hmm Sweet the song that once we sang But silent parting ways And you know And you know And you know Long ago when first we made a promise, Empty words I wonder did you
0: know You know, like very Beatles-esque here, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. Like kind it, of Penny Lane.
1: And a flugelhorn comes in out of, the no, out of nowhere. And then, of course, here it changes up again. The interesting thing about the vocalist, the guy who wrote this song, Carrie he has such a gentle, ethereal voice. He almost, this this kind of song was never done live because he didn't, he couldn't sing live because um, his voice was just too quiet. Oh, okay. I mean, he sang, he sang with the band, he sang all harmony, he sang all the parts and stuff, but like these solo, solo songs, they just didn't tend to do these live because Carrie didn't enjoy singing these at least that's what I heard.
0: Yeah, it's very delicate. hmm
3: Sleep while sweet sorrow wakes my day Sleep while you think of me with kindness, please remember the form.
1: Yeah, this this is a song that could almost be in anything.
0: Yeah. This kind of really soaring thing is one of the times that reminds me a little bit of some, like, Peter Gabriel era mm-hmm. Genesis, too. Mm-hmm. like, I mean, I would say that, it, that that's maybe, you know, one thing that probably... You know, I, they have the sort of ensemble vocal thing, um, but maybe in retrospect, that's another reason that they maybe didn't quite achieve the levels of, say, a Genesis or a Yes, because they didn't have... Gabriel is just a very magnetic front man personality. You know what I mean? And and maybe John Anderson was like that way as well. Yeah. And they probably didn't have that. uh, Well, you know- Some people gravitate towards a focal point in a band. You know what I mean? And we don't have that.
1: Yeah. Well, they had Derek who sang their power vocals, but like he- That was just not what they were about. I would say- I've thought about this a lot. And I really think that even I've seen John Anderson perform in the last few years, like John does his own thing now. Um, And he's basically doing all the songs that he wrote for yes, but he's, he's just, it's just him and guitar. And you realize that the core to a lot of the big yes song hits were original, just plain old rock and roll pop songs where he plays chords on the guitar and sings his melody and then you had these monster players like Steve Howe or Rick Wakeman or whatever Chris Squire and they would then say how can we how can we complex this up so then they would they would make long sections that would you know connect different parts of the song or they would take the chord progression and make it more complex with you know amazing guitar riffs and keyboard playing and all this other stuff but at its heart it's still sort of a traditional song and genesis is, is the same way those the songs at their heart are are a little bit more traditional the the, yeah. the and the, the what the thing i think is the most unique about gentle giant is at their core it's all about polyphony and i don't think i would say jethro tall sort of does it a little bit but not really even even jethro tall is is not based on polyphony and i think that's both the most the thing that makes General Giant unique, and also keeps them out of the top ten.
3: Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. nobody
1: wants to listen to that. Yeah. No, before we mean, go, but, if you could play just yeah. a little knots because knots is the thing that probably I used to play knots when I when I taught at USC, I would play this for the students and just say, "Identify what what this is. Tell me what yeah. so, what what era is this from." And it just yeah. blew people's <laughs> minds because they had no <laughs> idea what it was. All in
0: yeah this feels like almost really ancient kind of like choral yes
1: and then what is this this
0: this, this is i think what brought up actually that's what brought up zappa for me was this slow part
1: yes because of the the vibes, the
2: Tom and Jerry sounds.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, that's a very kind of fundamentally Zappa thing.
1: Totally. Yeah. I, I, actually, I would agree. Zappa, um, I think, s- sort of fell into counterpoint. I don't think he. I don't think he took classes in it. I think he realized it was a really interesting way to write, and so Zappa did a lot of polyphony. Um, although I think at his his heart he was a a rocker.
0: Yeah, I mean, he comes at it from a you know blues, really. I mean, he was ultimately mm-hmm. like that was his you know. But he, yeah, he's much more of a conventional like rocker, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, um, despite
1: how bizarre some of his stuff gets, yeah. he got more and more complex uh, and got more into into stuff like this. Um, I think as he went along. Anyway, we don't have to listen to this whole thing. It's it's a crazy piece because of the yeah. you know, and, and the thing is, is that. You won't find th- this kind of uh, melodic, madrigal counterpoint. You won't find this in old music. You'll find the style happening, but they would be way less dissonant. So this, this is really hard to place for, for music majors when they listen to this. They're like, okay, this is old. Igles- no, that's not right. That's not, you know, they can't figure out where, where it belongs, especially when the instruments come in. They're just like, what is this? Stop torturing us.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, I mean, I I've, I really enjoyed uh, my time with this album. Uh, and it was definitely one of the ones that we've done for the show where I think my opinion of it definitely changed from my first listen. Uh, to multiple listens. I, at first, I was like, "Oh boy, this is going to be some rough sledding." <laughs> uh, to be honest, the first time. But then it well, sort this is of started. I, to, I threw
1: it at you because I thought, you know, yeah. you youngsters, you're not going to be able to get through this. So I, I, <laughs> I applaud you for listening to it more than once and actually giving oh, it yeah. a shot. I, yeah, that's great. Think, yeah. You know, you start
0: to kind of get your head around where they're at, and it it, it sort of starts to like come into focus a little bit. But it, it yeah. definitely is even in the world of Prague, which can be challenging. I think they're an exceptionally different and, and challenging bands. So thanks for picking this. This was a really, uh, interesting listen.
2: Oh, cool. cool. I, um, appreciate I knew it, that man. we were in, in for something special when, uh, I asked for your pick, Marty, and you said, gentle giants, octopus, that'll teach them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, well, there was yeah. an old,
0: uh, this is actually a, there was a, there's a punk band called Flipper and their motto is we suffered for our music. Now it's your turn. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, oh, anyway, uh, we'll switch gears to a, uh, a, a very different band. Um, this is probably
1: another English band though. That's another
0: good. very, uh, well, an exceptionally English band. <laughs> I would say, um, the, the kinks, this is probably one of my, this might be in my top 10, uh, albums of all time. I think that it's very different in that you know, I think Ray Davies, uh, operates very much uh in a in almost opposite way of General Giant, in that he's sort of I think doing very innovative and interesting things, but always within a very traditional kind of pop songwriting context in a, a traditional kind of context. Yeah. But um I think he's no less maybe inventive in in his own way and, and certainly um in my mind I think uh one of the great lyricists of that era um, I think on par with anybody to me. Um, this is village green preservation society. Uh, this album is sort of an odd one. It was sort of a flop at the time. Um, but in the years pa- passing, it's sort of become appreciated. I believe, you know, a lot of people I think kind of now consider this, their sort of masterpiece. Um, it's a album that was, I think probably one of the, I would assume very out of, out of step with the times in that it was sort of released in the middle of like, you know, as bands like progressive rock was coming up and psychedelia was at its peak. This was an album that sort of almost looked backwards, um, to sort of a pastoral kind of England. And, and it's, there's a lot about memory and I think just a sort of way of life, uh, that's maybe passing away at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so let, let's, uh, let's hear the, I mean, the title track, I think sets a stage great this is i think to me one of the great songs of the 60s um this is village green preservation society I did find a sort of annotated lyrics to this on the Genius website, and like, there's a sort of a litany of these now extremely archaic kind of English cultural references to old radio programs, old commercials and old cartoons and things like that that have sort of, like, you know, I'm sure... We're already on their way out at this point, but are now, like, you know, might as well be a thousand years old. Yeah, um,
1: one of the lines I loved was the "save strawberry jam in all its different varieties. <laughs> yeah. I just love that line. It's so English.
0: <laughs> it, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Marty, are you, were you... I mean, you must have been somewhat familiar with the Kinks. I mean, they were a fairly big band for a long time, but um, did you ever have any relationship with them as a, as a band? Uh,
1: I mean... No, I mean, I just knew their hits. And I I still think Lola might be one of the most clever lyric songs ever. Uh, But, like, their early hits were just, like, great. They were part of the British invasion, so you couldn't avoid them. But, yeah, I think you're right. What's interesting to me about this album is not only does it sort of harken back to an earlier, you know, an, an early English society thing... But the sound of the music itself almost feels like mid-60s, like voice and heart kind of production to me. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, I think it was probably somewhat out of step with what was, you know, in fashion.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, I didn't, I don't think, I, this album just was completely out, under my radar. So thanks for sharing it with me. I listened to the whole thing and enjoyed it.
0: It had no yeah. idea they did this one. Yeah, let's. Uh, the the next song, uh, the second track, I think is is really, I, I think an amazing uh, lyrical song. I think melodically as well. Was do you remember Walter um, Ray Davies? I think is a great observer of people mm-hmm. um, as a lyricist, and I think that this sort of articulates that. It's sort of a situation that I, I like. I think everyone relates to, but no one's maybe articulated that sort of like running into somebody that you went to like high school with and maybe realizing that you shared a certain experience but you don't really have a whole lot in common now and that i don't know maybe the limitations of nostalgia in some ways
1: yeah
2: well and you know from the inverse perspective like the lack of self-awareness it takes for the singer to be like hey you're settled down you're calm i bet you go to you know bed by 8:30 as like that's kind of what happens to people, you know. What are you doing with your life, a singer? That you're not that you find this like a strange way of life, right? I I love well, the duality of this of this song.
0: In fact, the Davies brothers were being like lunatic alcoholics, basically. Oh, yeah. um,
1: well, this is out. this is the last album I think that the, the brothers were together. Is that right? Is that what I read?
0: Um, did Dave uh, Dave drifted out for a while? I think there they, he might no. I think he's he's he stays with them. One of the members quits after this. Pete. Oh, okay. uh, they, they, but they're sort of like that, you know. They were kind of the original like Gallagher, but you know they like. I actually read Tom Pe- uh, Tom Petty biography and like he talks about Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers opening up for the Kinks. Uh, this mm. is, like nineteen eighty two or three or four oh, cool. or something, yeah. And like so, these guys are like forty, yeah. And the first thing he sees is like at sound check, they get done and the Kinks start sound checking. Ray and Dave literally like get in a fist fight and they're like strangling each other (laughs) like at soundcheck and like these are not like 25 year olds anymore like so they were like very much love hate kind of thing
1: yeah that's what I heard yeah I like this song a lot it's 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 so it's a very interesting progression I love the piano it it's very unique I, I think this is one of the more interesting songs on the album so yeah it's amazing to me. I listened to the whole. There's like 15 songs, and I think it's almost all uh, major keys. Like almost everything is major and kind of happy.
0: Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and in really short. Like yeah, they don't they don't belabor it. They just nope. verse chorus verse chorus, and oh, they like yeah. they get in and out. Um, I guess you know is um as you were listening anything that you uh kind of stuck out to you um that you you'd, you'd want to listen to
1: well um i I noticed like it, well so here's the thing I would say and this is i'm gonna be nerdy and 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 pompous and stuff um but it's just the way that the way my mind works when i when I listen to stuff I sort of classify things and like this is definitely i mean I played in in in, um, you know, garage bands, you know, in, in, and when you play in a garage band, you're usually improvising and you're usually like, okay, here's here's the, well, let's do CG, we'll do D, C, and G. <laughs> Those are the three chords we're going to do. Mm-hmm. And, and you just start playing through it and then somebody comes up with a melody. I mean, that's just, that's a, the classic way bands in the 60s, and and yeah, garage so bands jam. you, you yeah. jam, you come up with like a three or four chord thing. And then maybe somebody goes, Hey, here's a, let's do this on the bridge or let's do this on the chorus. And then you sort of put it all together. And this definitely feels like that's the way this band worked. Like, like I, I, I'm not sure if it's true, but I have a feeling that Ray Davies he would maybe have a concept for a song and then he would just start jamming with a chord progression and maybe he would have a hook or a, a melody or whatever and, and mm-hmm. they'd play along and start working it out. But almost all these songs are, they're not pretentious at all. They all sort of grow from the, and this is, this is not a put down. I'm just saying stylistically, it comes from that sort of hooky simple three, four chord progression kind of thing. Um Yes. And there's that's great because then you can, that's your palette. So, you know that those the that's the fence around you that you stay within, and then what can you do that sounds unique or is different inside of that? Um, and like Animal Farm, if you play Animal Farm, that that yeah. chord progression reminds me of, uh, well, it's a combination like you know Bittersweet Symphony, The Verve, and uh, yes. which is I think from something from it's like a rip from it's a the rolling rolling stones. Stones. yeah rolling yeah. stones thing Can't but it's a, it. a, it's a it's technically one it's like a one seven four A G D A this is with a descending line and that's what they do and it's like it's right there because it's it, and but then they do this some really unconventional structure with it which I like but it it feels like uh it feels recognizable immediately. Because of that, and then then it goes on.
0: Yeah, I think this is, this is a great, a great, great song.
4: This world is
1: big and wild and half insane.
0: See, I kind of like the way he kind of drags the tempo oh, yeah, a little yeah. bit. No, he, a-
1: he just changes it up because he starts with his... Cookie chorus thing, and then he goes into a whole different thing, which is great. But he comes back to it, right? So.
0: And again, the kind of this impulse to kind of retreat, you know, yep. to, the to the country and to like a, a simpler way of life. Though, I think what. So here. 80's it is. Is all, yeah,
1: there we go. So here's think of the you know bittersweet mm-hmm. symphony over the top mm-hmm. of that so there you go totally but this is a fun song i really love this song. yeah it's unconventional he's different structure it's very cool
0: yeah and, and lyrically he's interesting because you know it is sort of like longing for this thing but there's always a certain, like, level of irony, I think, with him as well. You know, and mm-hmm. even, like... You know, this is, like... You know, talking about this fictitious farm, which, of course, he never grew up on a farm, but to begin with, you know... Sure. Oh, no, um, he was a London guy, right? He yeah, a, exactly. The they, he city. was a city kid. Yeah. Um, but also, just titling it an a- Animal Farm gives it that kind of... There's a little ominous, like, mm-hmm. Orwell reference yep, there. Exactly. So it's not, like... he. I think he's also sort of, you know... This is a fantasy. It's not, like, the reality. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. It's, like...
4: And in a bad, bad world.
1: Yeah, and he's got such a unique voice, too. I, I love his voice.
2: I'm glad you brought up his voice, because, like, where he's doing that slowing and expanding, yeah. he's, like, getting a little growly with uh-huh. it, and then, like later on in the song, when he's singing the chorus, he's very, like, almost angelic. Yeah, You know, like, yeah. he's yelling through part of it, he's growling through part of it, and he, it just seems very dynamic, which I did not associate with the kinks very much. I didn't yeah. know them well. But before Matt had me listen to his album, um, I assumed it was mostly like this, like the chorus. Yeah. But he's pretty dynamic with his voice.
1: He is very dynamic, yeah. Yeah, and he doesn't seem affected. He's not, it, I, I like the fact that, it doesn't seem like he's like, yeah, I need to I need to write the next big hit. He's just mm. writing what he wants to write, which I think is great. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, unfortunately, that didn't get a hit out of this. But it was, <laughs> no. I, I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is kind of a down period. I mean, I think Lola kind of resurrected them that album. Well, um, I mean,
1: Lola, I got to say, uh, I, I know it's not on this album, but I've always, of course, I sang along with Lola the whole time when I was a teenager is when it came on, I had no idea what the song was about. It's just so funny. Um, But I know that it's Lola is sort of a joke about one of the guys. I think it might've been a roadie that like almost fell for a, you know, a female in a bar who turned out not to be female, but uh, his, his lyrics are so clever and that's such a great song. I just love that song. Well,
0: and it's also too, I think a lot of people, you know, it, it could have been a mean song.
1: Yeah, no, no. But it,
0: it's a very affectionate song. You it know, totally, and even, yeah. even, even like as much as culture has changed in that respect, it actually holds up much better than you would probably think a song about that topic written in like 1970.
4: Yeah. Would like
0: hold up. And I think that, I think that's a testament to me. I, him, I mean, I, I hold him in high regard as a lyricist. Um, and that that's a great example. Um I wanted to a uh, picture picture book I think is another one of the kind of like it's not a hit. There weren't really hits, but I think it's become sort of a fan favorite eh, eh, over the years. Mhm. There's actually this was a hit twice cuz there's a song by Green Day called Warning that like literally recycles that riff oh, like okay, verbatim. Sure. Like absolutely verbatim
1: well it's it's a it's got a great you know just good old rock and roll groove but see i mean once again we haven't heard a minor we haven't heard a minor progression yet it's all happy major stuff
2: Matt, one of our listeners, I'm sorry, I just lost their name, Neil Walker also brought that up about how it's very, pretty much Green Day's warning. Do you know if there was any, like, litigation about that?
0: Um, no, I don't think, I don't think they ever pursued that. I mean, they might have had a case, but, um, I always feel like some of, a lot of these 60s guys just felt like they stole so much from, like, blues and, like, early rock and roll performers, like Little Richard, and, you know, that it was sort of like, you know, kind of just how music goes you know
1: yeah you know i i would just say when you're doing when like i said before you're inside this little fence and you're doing a three chord progression or a four chord progression trust me what you're doing has been done thousands of times already (laughs) so it's not about copying as much as just putting your own unique stamp on something so um I, I, I look sort of askance at a lot of those lawsuits that say, you know, you copied my thing. You know, it has to be a real direct ripoff, in my opinion, if, when it when it has to do with pop or rock, because the, the fence is very small to begin with. So that's just the way I feel about it. Yeah. And <clears throat> well,
0: that's really the folk blues tradition. I mean, yeah. you know a lot of those blues men that they ripped off probably ripped it off from a bluesman oh, yeah, that absolutely. no one's ever heard of, you know? So, well,
1: you know, let, let me just say, I was thinking about this. Thank you to you guys for bringing me on this show, but one thing I would say I've learned over the years is that um, you can have influences, right? Everybody has influences. You're going to be influenced by what you heard. Um, it, it's really, if you're going to have integrity though, it's, just how derivative are you? So there's this, this gray area between influence and derivative. And if you're too derivative, I think you don't have integrity. So, um, but you're never going to get away from your influences. And, and I think you can, right. ce- you can celebrate the fact that you're influenced. You're in a, you're you've jumped into the pool of these great cultural references and, um, but if you're, you know, if you're trying to copy, if you're trying to be directly derivative, then then you don't really have integrity. So, well said. Yeah. Um,
2: you'll you'll be uh, pleased to know that we've got some community questions to that effect in the back half. Uh,
1: but oh, okay. Where should
2: we go next? Yeah. How about? Uh, I don't know, Marty. Was there anything? Yeah, you
1: yeah. Wanted let, to- let's. Uh, well, like I said before, uh, there's a bunch of these songs that just sort of give me that mid '60s voice and heart feel which is not a bad thing at all. Tommy Boyce and and, uh, and uh, Bobby Hart were geniuses. I mean, they did so many hits. I don't think the Kinks were necessarily influenced by them. I think Boyce and Hart was probably influenced by the Kinks. But um, but then there's this one song, Phenomenal Cat, I think it's number 11, which really sort of shocked me. There was some really interesting stuff I wasn't expecting, including my instrument. The Mellotron shows up in here, and, it, and uh, then there's this weird – cat voice. I think Dave did the voice and they sped it up so it sounds like a cat and there's a little phrygian at the end of the chorus. It's like some really fun stuff so I wouldn't mind listening to that again. See, it sounds like I dream of Genie all of a sudden. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah. He has very TV like that era of television for sure.
1: There. There's the Mellotron flutes.
0: That is a great sound.
1: Yeah. Idiot boys. boys. Aren't they all... Now we're minor First
0: time Wow I never There's I never really noticed that Until you pointed out But you're yeah. right I will say too For you know I mean You're definitely right That they're a very You know Conventional band Of that era In some ways But he has a very odd Like
1: Melodic oh, sense yeah, For his vocals Here's this cat <laughs> <laughs> this is such a bizarre song I just loved it it was just like out of the blue for me and you're right he has a, like I don't know where this song came from in his head but I just think it's spectacular <laughs> this is probably the most psychedelic of the songs yes perhaps perhaps there, right there's a little friggin' lick. And then <laughs> yeah, that it's is, an what is that?
0: <laughs> yeah, this one I can definitely Some of these songs I feel like should have been hits, but this one I can kind of see like why it wasn't proper. <laughs> but it, that, in a good way, you know what I mean? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, of course. Some no, of them, it's, like it's picture the,
0: like it's... picture book or something, I'm like, why wasn't yeah, that a hit? That just feels like a hit, you know. Yeah, you're right. Or the title track.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you notice, like the drums are like super simple on that. It's just like, it's just a very, like, I love the fact like that nobody told them not to put that song on the album. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, totally.
0: Um I'm trying to think out what else we should, I'd like to cover. Um I think kind of just like, because I think it's kind of an interesting bookend to the title track, the first song, um, the song there's a there's Village Green Preservation Site and then there's a song called Village Green, Yeah. which is more of a, I guess if the first one's more of like a hopeful kind of like preservation thing, this is maybe more a mourning for you know
1: yeah, and this is the actually, fact that it has passed away you know I think this might be the first song that actually does start minor so if I remember correctly yeah see.
0: Is that a harpsichord?
4: Yeah.
1: This song, to me, not only could have Boyce of the Heart done this, but it could have been uh, the Partridge family.
0: Okay. Boyce and Heart were they they were a songwriting team.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean they did the monkeys. They did almost all oh. the monkeys. They did the co- they did the Partridge Family. They but they did big hits for like other bands too. Like Got you'd you. be shocked okay. if you if you looked up Boys and Art and you saw all the hits that they had in the sixties. Okay,
0: so they were kind of like in that like Neil Diamond, Carol King kind of thing. Like uh, before yeah. before they were yes. like artists or whatever. Well, they you were, know?
1: they never really hit it as artists because they were always sort of behind the scenes writing for other people bands. I mean, they you know they wrote most of the monkeys stuff. Oh, really? But I mean, I could see David Cassidy singing the song. He would have sung it different than than the Kings. Yeah. But it's it could have been one of those songs on the Partridge Family. That's just the way it feels to me because uh, that harpsichord. You know, you could see the girl playing the harpsichord in the back, and and that sort of minor, that we're serious kind of feel. It's a uh, yeah, and, and you know, it sounds like I'm putting it down. I'm not. It's it's just like some of the, my fondest memories are are those '60s era pop song so that's what this feels like but it's still it's got ray davis kink to it
0: yeah i one one song i really like and this i've always heard this term the beatles use it a lot um or were influenced by i guess it was music hall Mm -hmm. in in britain which is sort of a like kind of vaudeville yeah um uh, all my friends were there um Mm -hmm. which i think is is a really great song and i I guess it was this sort of school of kind of old-fashioned like Song and dance men and variety shows. Yeah, I, actually, shows and I things. wrote
1: down like uh, it has a slight Gilbert and Sullivan feel. And then, believe it or not, it goes into this cool descending little waltzy thing that reminds me of uh, Gar- Simon and Garfunkel's "America." But yeah, yeah, yeah. A, this is a great song. This one is, I really yeah, it like kind of balances
0: an almost silly feeling verse with sort of a very affecting like mm-hmm. chorus. Yeah. But yeah, this reminds me of like guys with like a straw boater hat or yeah, something yeah, exactly. and, like some kind of
1: vest on. <laughs> no, you're right. Music calls, is a good call.
4: <laughs>
1: but here they're in four. There's a straight up four four. No there. All of my friends were there. And now they go into a waltz.
0: Yeah, this is so pretty, I love this melody. My friends were their best
4: My friends are there to stand and stare. Say what they may, all of their friends
0: need not stay. You know, I hear that Simon and Garfunkel. Now that you mention it, yeah.
1: Sorry, I don't mean to wreck anything for you. No, no, no. I
0: like I like both those songs. Yeah, yeah. But again, like how out of step is this with like you know if people totally. are listening to like The Doors and Jimi Hendrix <laughs> and you know like Pink Floyd starting absolutely. And,
1: you know. I mean, this part right here is just so musical, Gilbert and Sullivan, wordy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You expect to see him, you know, it's some sort of comedy routine on stage. <laughs>
4: I went to that cafe
1: it's funny, you know, Simon Gar- Garfunkel's America came out in 1968, too, which is the same year this came out, which is. Oh, wow. You can't be more different, but it's like that, that feels interesting progression.
0: But I think in their way, you know, both him and Simon definitely had a affinity for sort of like traditional songcraft. Oh
1: yeah, totally.
0: Um, in, in the sort of traditional sense of mm-hmm. standards.
4: All of my there, now I
1: Genius.
0: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great song. Um, any, uh, any, was there anything else you had notes on? I know we need get some, we got some, uh, listener questions as well, but, um, I want to make sure we, we cover this.
1: No, pretty good. I, I mean, I think we, we got most of it. I, uh, you know, he they got that, there's a, there's a doors feel on Wicked Annabelle. Um, there's this little Jamaican thing on Monica. So but they, they just, he was, I, this, I found this last, uh, album really fascinating. So thanks for introducing me to it.
0: Yes. Yeah. And, um, one song to check out, um, which is available on like, uh, it's a, there's a comp called The Kink Chronicles um, that it's on, and various others. There's a song called "Days" that was on the first pressing of this in Europe and England, and then was dropped for some reason. It was released as a single in England, and um, mm. that was that's a I think considered one of their their better songs uh, as well. So so check out "Days" because it, it was done during these sessions. It was supposed to be part of the album, and then I don't know if the label kind of just wanted to have a a stopgap single between albums or something. Uh-huh. So. That's that's well worth checking out, and all it's, right, it's on cool. various compilations um, that have some of their their single because back then, you bands still did yeah. sort of single Singlies, only songs, right? Right. Um, like you know, strawberry fields forever or whatever. Um, anyway, but yeah, this this I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's it's he's he's somebody that um you know I really admire. Um, I think the next album after this is uh, uh Arthur and the Decline and Fall of the British Empire. Uh, Ah. which is equally kind of ambitious it's a little darker and and it ties into more like world war one and things like that Um, Mm -hmm. but he's he's an interesting guy ray davies yeah for sure totally agree all right well um jason i understand we have some uh we have some questions
2: for marty yes we do from our great min max community uh (laughs) they all suggested these questions and songs from our patreon call which we put up before recording every episode if you support us on Patreon at any level, uh, you can get exclusive access to, uh, you know, suggesting songs for our wonderful guests. You've seen the wonderful bill that we get of guests um, on this show, and you can ask them all questions that you, uh, you've you had baking in your mind for a long time, or just uh, see if you can get them to listen to one of your favorite songs. Uh, again, that is patreon.com minmax. You can find the posts before we record, but uh, as always, this show is still completely free to listen to. It is public and open on the internet, and we hope you enjoy it while you're listening to it. Um, but for right now, we've got some questions. Starting with uh, White Mex, who asks, "Are there any other video game franchises, Marty, that you'd love to compose for? Any that you you know never got the chance to, or that you would love to make music for?"
1: Um, yeah, actually, I've been asked this question before, and I think I always give the same answer. But I, I would, I love the Zelda series. It's completely yeah. different than anything I've ever worked on. I. I'll I will never get a chance to work on it I'm sure of that but I would love to have composed for it and I would still I would still love to do some a Zelda score I think that would be a blast
2: What did you think of the Breath of the Wild soundtrack did that you know, particularly bring in any interesting it, ways It
1: it was okay I I thought there were some nice parts to it I thought it was a little bit repetitive that's the one thing I think I would like hope to bring to the to the franchise is like they use a lot of musical effects for uh, different things like you know every time you open a chest or every time you go you finish a, a mission inside of a you know uh, a dungeon or whatever it is um they they reuse a lot of, they they do the same kinds of stuff that sort of like gives you that indication that you accomplished that same thing again I, mm-hmm. I just would i think i think they could have more variety for some of that stuff um interesting so uh but i did like the fact that it was uh it was a little bit more produced. It was a little more musical. It was a little more scorey. Um, they didn't have nonstop wall-to-wall music, which I appreciate. I think, I think uh, it's, it's definitely a step in the right direction.
2: Definitely. Uh, Alfredo wants to know what makes a great sci-fi soundtrack. I'll let Marty take it away, but uh, this one's for you too, Matt.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I think the, The most important thing about it, and this probably applies to everything, but especially I think with sci-fi is is like you have to have it the the composition itself has to really enhance the emotional journey of the story that's being told. And so you can do that with like weird, you know, synth sounds or, you know, bizarre production or Or you can do it with just purely great orchestral stuff. So, like, one of my favorite sci-fi scores is Jerry Goldsmith's uh, Alien, the first Alien. That is just a spectacularly good score. And, you know, perhaps, you know, you can make the case it's not really sci-fi, it's horror. But um, I still think it's a sci-fi. It's a classic sci-fi film. And I think Goldsmith's score is spectacular. And that's almost entirely orchestral. So... I think it just really enhances the emotional journey. So,
0: yeah. Um, one that always, and, you know, ties into some of the music we've been talking about actually. And I'm, maybe I'm stretching the definition of sci-fi a little bit here. Um, but one, I always feel like there needs to be sort of an eerie quality to it. And I always really loved the use of, um, uh, Walter Wendy Carlos's, uh, switched on Bach music in a clockwork orange, Oh um, yeah. Just because it was kind of like wow. it had this that movie, you know, is is obviously very disturbing, you know, dystopia, but it was sort of this like taking something that is sort of very familiar, these very familiar classical pieces, but making them sound kind of like cold and alien because they were performed on the 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 Moog synthesizer. So there's just not any sort of like human kind of articulation about it. So it had this weird kind of futuristic yet old kind of thing, and 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 taking something and kind of almost making this like really blank feeling, in yeah. an ominous uh, tone because it was it sort of t- re- removing the sort of human uh, performance out of it and and making it seem just like this sort of mechanical uh, thing. Yeah, and I thought it had a very exactly. odd. It created a sort of odd tension. Well, and, in and, that and movie. it was
1: juxtaposed against the Beethoven. And and then the the sort of that I think it just subliminally the concept of clockwork, a clockwork orange. You know you have the clockwork and the organic and yeah I, you're absolutely right that was a great and, and that's Kubrick's genius. Like he would he wouldn't have necessarily people score some of his movies. He would pull existing music in and and I don't know if you know this, but you know the scene where Malcolm McDowell sings singing in the rain while he's doing horrific things that was his that was his idea on the set like that wow so he just he's he decided he would do singing in the rain on the set and and stanley kubrick was like yeah that's genius do that
2: (laughs) yeah sounds like you got dangerously uncomfortably close to that character (laughs) yes Uh, this next one is for just you, Marty, but, uh, Mike Lynch wants to know, how did you and Michael Salvatore begin your partnership?
1: Oh, well, I think I almost, I touched on this a little bit, but we actually met when I was 18, I think he was 19. Um, his, his wife at the time was a violin major and she was in a class with me. And then I, I went to their house and met her husband, Mike, and he had a band and i started a band and so we were we kind of were in rival bands but he also had some he was much more technically adept at at certain things like recording he had a re- tape deck and he had two tape decks and he could record on one and then record again on the other and it was just so mm. cool so um i i got my band into a little basement studio and tried to do some stuff and it was kind of a disaster And he heard that and thought, you know, he could do better. And he went to the same basement studio and had an equally bad experience. So Mm -hmm. he decided, I then I went to grad school, and he was in the Chicago area, and I was at uh, USC. And he went out and built himself a full-blown eight-track studio in his basement. So when I came back uh, after grad school, uh, we were still friends, but he, I, he was the first person I thought of when I, I got that gig. And I'm like, hey, Mike, I'll split money with you. Let, I got to use your studio. Let's do something. <laughs> and so, believe it or not, that night, we I think we wrote five tunes together and produced them. And we the next day, we sold two of them to clients. And the wow. rest is history. So, yeah.
2: So they say. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, ben Hansen has an open question, but it sounds... Uh, pointed toward you marty um okay. ben hanson of course of min max everybody's favorite ben hanson uh wants to know if you've seen uh 321 mccartney a series on oh. uh, hulu by rick rubin
1: no i mean rick rubin and paul mccartney are you kidding like of course but i don't yeah, have hulu yeah. i you know and like i'm <laughs> actually thinking about getting hulu but i thought i saw someplace where it's like and this will be coming to netflix so if Either I'll oh, wait till it okay. comes to Netflix, or I'm just going to go ahead and get Hulu because I I haven't yeah. seen it yet. So I have you guys you can seen hold it? Out,
2: probably. No, no, I haven't tuned in. I actually this is the first I've heard of it, but it sounds fascinating. He's going over yeah. like the Masters. Yeah, I, I yeah, mean, I got wild. to
1: see it. I mean, I I got <sighs> to spend almost two years on and off 2011 2012 working with Paul McCartney, which was
2: you know yeah. a
1: ridiculous moment in my life, and uh, he's super super nice guy and really, really easy and fun to work with. So yeah, I would love to watch that. Because a Rick Rubin, I mean, talk about, you know, that he's he's an amazing guy. And like when yeah. Rick Rubin right. he did that album with Johnny Cash and it's just just kills me. That one just mm-hmm. tears me up. So
0: Yeah. Um I think Jason, as long as we're on that topic, I think we had a question related to the um
2: music of the spheres, didn't we? Oh uh, yes, we did actually. Um, Jake Simpson wants to know what you oh. think of Music of the Spheres uh <laughs> almost ten years later. Do you think about it <laughs> much? How's how does it go down?
1: Uh I think about it a lot. Um it is probably the one of the pinnacles of my career. It was, you know, working with Paul McCartney, 110 piece orchestra, 40 voice choir, boys choir, Abbey Road Studios, um, music for music's sake. Uh like, I, it couldn't have been a better experience while I was doing it. Um I'm it, then, it, of course, it hurts me because it, I think it got tied up in some litigation. And, and you know, there was some, in my opinion, some misrepresentations to the public, we were, we, we told the public it was coming out. And then it didn't get released until way later. And, And I think because because of all that confusion, and I'm not really allowed to say everything I'd like to say about it, um, at some point I'm going to be free to say more soon. Let me just say that. But um, I I kind of think Paul McCartney's role in that whole project has been kind of misunderstood by the public and hasn't been really talked about the way it would have been if it had all, basically, if I hadn't gotten fired (laughs) before it was released. (laughs) So, uh um, there you have it. I, you know, it's, 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 the, it's the best of times. It's the worst of times. That's how I think of it,
2: but unforgettable in it's any totally, case, in any, um,
1: any case, absolutely.
2: Uh, so this is the one I was alluding to earlier. Um, Johnny fan 12 wants to know what is your weirdest or most surprising <laughs> influence as a musician? I'm, I'm really interested in this because I mean, gentle giant right off the bat is pretty out there. <laughs> so I'm, I'm surprised if you've got one that can top that.
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's, I probably just threw the weirdest one at you guys right away by just saying, yeah, take gentle (laughs) giant and tell me what you think. Um, I would say, and this ties into what I said earlier, but like, I think that what I learned in my 16th century counterpoint class, um, where I learned, I really learned the mechanics of polyphony. I learned, uh, what they call species counterpoint, um, which I I would bet money you guys have neither of you guys have ever heard the term species counterpoint. Is that correct? Nope. <laughs> um, but I gotta say it, it I, I've talked about this in a few teaching videos, but like species counterpoint is something that has stuck with me and I use it all the time. And I don't think um I'm not saying it's the right way to do it. I'm just saying that's what I do. That's how my brain tends to function. Right. Uh, And uh, so if you understand species counterpoint, you might be able to see the influence of that. So, yeah.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I was just about to ask how much you think it comes through, but um, Johnny Fan also has like a follow-up to that, which I found equally interesting. Have you ever heard music that you felt was inspired by you? I mean, (laughs) not to say that you're going to you know, polish your own crown here, but do you think you've ever heard it and you're like, that sounds a bit like X or that that's where my mind was going when I wrote X. Uh,
1: All right. Well, I'm going to be snarky, but if you're listening to any of the halo infinite music, you can certainly hear a music <laughs> that was inspired by me. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. I think that's pretty obvious. I hope uh, it, you know, I, and, and, you know, every once in a while fans, you know, I'll hear music that fans go, Hey, this is like an homage or I'm doing a thing that's like yours. And and I, I hear what they're doing, and, and it feels like that. Um, I, I don't know if I've heard anything other than in the Halo universe, where I I know there are composers who are either, and they they'll they'll say it on you know they'll they'll admit it's not like it's a wrong thing. They'll say, yeah, we're we're paying you know honor to you know, either the legacy of Halo music or, you know, Marty's piece of this or Mike's piece of that or Marty and Mike's piece, blah, 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 and we're doing a new version of it. So yeah, there's a lot of that in, in the Halo universe where I'm like, oh, that's mm-hmm. that's a nice new take on something that I remember writing and this is a new arrangement or a new interpretation of something that um
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know came you know, it was it, the inception came from me or Mike or something. And it's a new version,
2: right? No, we, uh, we had Gareth Coker on this um, podcast, oh, cool. not way too long ago. And he was a very reverent and deferential to, you know, <laughs> paying paying homage to like, you know, there, there's not a whole lot of braggadocio on his part. He knows what halo music needs to be. And he sort of realizes that there is a legacy to follow. So it was really heartening to hear that perspective from him. And I guess, wow, what a fun bookend to the halo music like franchise to have you on and to have gareth on oh that's Um, great
1: yeah i'll have to go back and listen to that
2: yeah please do um in the meantime uh neil walker um there was a point you guys were talking in this episode about, you know, how like uniquely British that this music was and the in Neil's question sort of comes up on that um do you ever think about, you know, your love for music on those international terms of like is there anything uniquely British that you love about British pop music? Is it like the dryness? Is it the references? Is it the accent? Uh, yeah. Is there any of that that just sticks out to you and is like that's why I love the Kinks. That's why I love the Beatles. That kind of thing?
1: Well, you know, I growing up the British invasion hit when I was like in whatever it was third grade or something. Um, So the British invasion was a really huge, you know, Epic moment in my life. So I've always had this soft spot for like everything British. I mean, even the, you know, Herman's hermits and everything else. Um, It's, it's just like everybody, like, especially, you know, in the, in grade school, like all the girls fell in love with the Beatles and like, um, Mm -hmm. so like, all of us guys thought that was horrible. But of course we all had to grow our hair long and, you know, buy Beatles boots (laughs) and, and, you know, try to look like Paul McCartney and stuff. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It was just, it's culturally, it was such a phenomenon that like, I've just always had the soft spot for anything British. We, I've been to London several times and, and we've traveled around England and, uh, and, of course, obviously working with Paul, I mean, it, that was, a was dream come say, true. Yeah. I mean, it was like that should have never happened. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, uh, even Jethro Tull, like it, you can see like the Kinks with their British, pre- you know, s- s- village green preservation society. They have this wonderful quaint thing going on. And, and Jethro Tull has this, you know, British feel to I mean, obviously, some some nasty stuff, but like the turns of phrases are uniquely British. And then he did an album called Heavy Horses, which is a sort of homage to the to the giant, um, the big horses that pulled the plows. I, yeah, that's you know like that I, I don't know a
0: ton of J- Jethro Tull, but like that that and Songs from the Wood are like my two jams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and both really of those great.
1: feel so don't they? Both so feel so British. I mean, <laughs> they yes, just, exceptionally. Great. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's uh it's interesting. I guess I always I mean I think, you know, the Kinks to me are typify a lot of the things I probably like about British pop. You know, that sort of um, yeah. arch kind of um sensibility and, and uh kind of literate thing. Yeah, it's just I mean, you know, uh not to be too jingo-whisky, but I guess I, I I always sort of see it as sort of like England's kind of always putting a clever spin on like what America <laughs> Creates. And well, I, I mean, I that's know that, the blues. Okay. Like, the blues. Yeah. They, they I mean, resold
1: but, us the blues, which is hilarious.
0: Right. But even, you know, if you go back to, like, you know, even the the 60s, I mean, you know, like, it's no secret that when Hendrix came to England. Yeah. It was just everyone's head was turned around and pretty soon, like, Eric Clapton's not playing in blues, he's playing in cream. You know what I yeah, mean? And, like, exactly. Pete Townsend is, like, moving towards, like, the the bombastic, like, who's next stuff. And so mm-hmm. – you know, I just think that American music has a more of a, a immediacy, maybe, and maybe more of a connection to like, uh, just the gut level kind of roots of things. And then England, I think, and, and this is not a criticism of English music cause I enjoy a ton of it, but you know, they, they, I almost feel like they are, it's a, a more intellectualized version of, of American music. You know what I mean? Yep,
1: I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, this is, this is one of the reasons why, I mean, I was like huge into Led Zeppelin. Um, and, you know, they're so heavily influenced by like blues, but like they repackaged it and did it in a completely different way. With, you know, I, I think you're right. There's a, a, a sort of intellectualizing involved to American blues. And they, but they, you know, it was, it was good. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Oh, I well, think I- when you said that, uh, uh, you know, that there's an actor named Terrence Stamp. Oh, yeah, for okay. sure. It was, I think he's, He's Zod from Superman, so he when he says bow before Zod. Anyway, he's been in a bunch of stuff. Great British actor, but I I worked with him on Halo Three. I think it was Halo Three, and it, when he was in the recording studio with me, he talked about um, the you know the heydays of the '60s when when he went with his friends to see this new performance in one of the local clubs. And like Clapton was there and, you know, half the Beatles were there and they were all there to watch Jimi Hendrix, who had just showed up. So it was really fun to talk to a guy who was actually in Britain during the heyday of, you know, pop and rock. And he saw Jimi Hendrix when he came. Yeah. So that was amazing. That was just a little side story. Yeah. (laughs) Or even
0: like I'm trying to think of another example. It's not the blues, but even like a a band... You know, a lot of bands kind of flirted with like sort of darkness, you know, mm-hmm. at that time, like maybe the Rolling Stones, but like if you compare the Stones to like say like The Doors. Yeah. Like The Doors didn't feel like they were play acting as much, like flirting with that kind of dark thing, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and and the Stones always felt a little bit like and I love the Stones, they're one of my favorite bands, but you know, they like Jagger always feels like a little bit of an actor, you know what I mean, in in his roles
2: totally. uh, on yeah, stage, I agree. so
0: Whereas, like, the, the Morrison, like, obviously, well, destroyed himself and Mick's still alive. So, I mean, you know, Mick Mick obviously is the smarter one there. But, you know, like, like it's just an American impulse, I think, to, like, kind of, you know, maybe drive it into the ditch. Well, yeah, I mean? yeah.
1: Like, Jim Morrison totally took, you know, die, live hard, die young, drug, sex, and rock and roll seriously. Everybody believes Mick Jagger takes it seriously. But somehow he's been able to remain healthy. So I wonder how serious he really was.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's so. a fraud. You heard He's a here. fraud. I didn't, I didn't mean it like that. I <laughs> no, mean, they're no, a great no. band. No, but you know, no, it's no. just,
0: I think American music has a certain immediacy and sort of like, uh, I don't know what what I'm trying to say. Yeah,
1: but like, could uh, could someone explain how Keith Richards is even still alive? I mean, I... Just good good <laughs> genes,
0: I guess. All right, clean I'm
1: living, sorry. clean that living, and, and good
2: genes. No, no. Okay. Donate his body to science. <laughs> that thing get poked and prodded. Um, okay, so we have, this has been fascinating and wonderful, but I think we have, probably time for one more question and i will uh, leave it up to you marty should we take a question about gentle giant or would you like to play a music game like a free association game that one of our uh, listeners came up with
1: uh Wow. I don't even know what that is. I, I, I'll try the free association thing.
2: Sure. All right. We are, we are opening a black box here. Tom Blackburn uh, says that he has a game for Marty. It is music free association. The rules are simple. <laughs> I, Jason, will list will list a word or two and your job is to respond to that word with the first musical instinct you have. For example, Whoa. if I say the words lemon grove, you might say woodwinds and then maybe you could explain why you chose that because you were picturing wind moving through trees because the words lemon grove sort of naturally connote that Wow, boy this is getting esoteric they're here I'll, I'll try to get very
1: <laughs> well, i'll clear my mind now um, we played something
2: okay. <laughs> please do um we played something like this with austin wintry as well and it went over really really well uh so no you know no pressure but to, you know, another another jerry goldsmith fan if you may know oh absolutely um, yeah uh okay so the first phrase combination is cricket lipstick
1: wow yeah right.
2: I mean, Tom's good at putting uh, these ones together, dude. What are we doing? What are we doing lipstick. here, Jason?
1: This is like I, I I need to have drugs or something in order to <laughs> get my mind this free. Uh, you know what? Actually, my mind did go to uh, Frank Zappa. I gotta tell you, it's just there's just it feels like it should be fr- off of Mothers of Invention. Um, it's just Ooh. too bizarre. Cricket lipstick. That, guy, yeah. that could
0: be a title for sure. For yeah, sure. Cricket
2: Definitely. lipstick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I will abridge the list because there are eight of them, and I feel like that's going to fry us all to death if we go through all of them. And Thank maybe you, Tom. You guys but...
1: should just share one too. So let's see. Yeah.
2: Uh, um, so I'll go for sizzling concrete. What uh, sounds come up when you think of that?
1: Sizzling concrete. <sighs> wow. I did give you an option here, Marty. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> I. Said but you'd I, take I another question. We could sure. go back to General
2: Giant. Just <sighs> yeah. see. <laughs>
1: all right, let's just move on. Go to the next thing. I'll try one more.
2: Sure, sure. Uh, aching fingers.
1: Aching fingers. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I would. I, I've been, I'm thinking of Rolling Stones. I just can't help that. I just immediately think of sticky fingers. So. But I mean, that's mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. even a good. I'm, I'm not being. I don't think I'm being esoteric enough for your for your <laughs> questioner. No, I, he wants I me think to like locked in. I am. I'm locked into like bands. So all right. <laughs> well let's just do a quick no, general drawing question. What do you got?
2: Sure, sure. The general drawing question you almost answered earlier, and it's uh excuse me, from H Large4 oh, okay. who says, Why do you think they never hit it bigger?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um and, and the funny thing is they wanted to, and I stopped really caring about their albums probably around nineteen seventy-seven. Number one, I got married, I went to grad school, um, but number two, they started actually purposely trying to do songs that were had had some potential of breaking through, and all of a sudden they lost their uniqueness. And I think uh, their second album is called "Acquiring the Taste," and it it really signifies you know the kinds of people who would be Gentle Giant fans. It's just like you just have to actively listen you be, you feel like you're part of a very secret club but if you're going to be part of a secret club you're never going to break through to the populace so <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they did yeah. it to themselves they did it to yeah. themselves and i think they just didn't i just don't think they had pop songs in them i don't think they had you know they could i just don't think they had it so they would never mm. they would never break through
0: one thing i'm going to criticize them about sure. because i was going through this discography on uh, you know the internet and spotify and stuff uh, not a fan of the acquiring the taste album cover. <laughs> I think uh, that was a little kind of weirdly out of character for them, and I I don't love it. Um, but you know that's the direction they went in. Well, I mean, it you,
1: you, it's it's a it's an album you have to open it up, and it's a peach. So I, I don't know I, where I, your mind is going. So yes,
0: yes, yes. So certainly
1: that it was all me.
0: It wasn't them. It all. was all, all you. Me. I don't know all what right, you're talking well,
2: about. <laughs> all right. Well, before we go. Uh, We have one song that we always play from our community as our outro song. And this week's is going to be from Jonathan 12, who suggested uh, pull up the people by MAA. Speaking of an artist who has some really wild influences, you should check out her Wikipedia. It is something to see. Um, So, yeah, this uh, was,
0: uh, this was uh, so fun, Marty. We really appreciated, uh, obviously like, you know, kind of getting into Gentle Giant and just your perspective musically was, it was super fun to kind of get, uh you know, from the more, you know, compositional aspect and everything. Well, it's good uh, you guys uh, had here. the
1: warm-up people like Gareth Coker and Austin Wintry and then you finally got to me because that's <laughs> that's the order, you know.
2: <laughs> wow. Now, now yeah, we have, now we have we to go. shut down the podcast. No more episodes. <laughs> no,
1: yeah, exactly,
0: exactly. We, this is the end. This is, we, we reached the, This is the final uh, boss of this. Guy there, you guy go, guy, there you go. There you go. But uh, in all seriousness, though, uh, it was a great conversation, Marty. We super appreciate your time, and uh, just thanks so much for being. Here.
1: Oh well, uh, Jason and Matt, I appreciate uh, being invited, and it was a lot of fun.
0: And we also uh, always appreciate you listening. Uh, And we definitely support uh, or appreciate all the people that support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash minmax. Uh, So if you want to kick in, they're doing a bunch of great video game content over there. And and we're kind of doing our music thing. And it's it's been great. So appreciate all our supporters. Um, Marty, have a great rest of the week. Thanks so much. And all of you, we'll see you in two weeks.
1: Goodbye, everybody.
5: Yeah, we got God down, we got you Every day thinking about how we get through Everything I own is on I owe you But I'm here bringing you something new You don't like the people, they don't like you Then they're gonna set it off with the big boo Son in the battle it's a son door daughter Why you wanna talk about who done who? Why you wanna talk about Slank time, That's that M-I-A tank I got the bombs to make you blow I got the bees to make you bang time. Got the bass to make it bang.